we If you're looking for a show about everyday black dreamers and doers, you've come to the right place. Join me on a quest to find ordinary people doing extraordinary things, reinterpreting the rules of the game in order to achieve life on their own terms. I'm your host, Moses Tillman Young, and welcome to the Black Gold Podcast. In this episode, I interview Brian Asinja. He is based in New York and is the CEO of Dream Galaxy Platform, an innovation studio that trains, advises, and funds ethical entrepreneurial leaders to launch, grow, and scale inclusive innovations. He is also the author of the new book, Cashless Society 101, a practical guide to ethical leadership and inclusive innovation. In our conversation, Brian and I discuss what exactly a cashless society is, the benefits of having a Pan-African virtual currency instead of cash, and how foreign currencies can affect the very government of a nation. So tune in and tuck in and listen to this episode with Brian Asinja. Welcome to the Black Gold Podcast. Today I have with me Brian Asinja, and he is an author and also the founder of The Pearl Dream. It is a organization that focuses on educating youth through homeschooling programs that allow them to learn more about what he calls a cashless society and also help create a better sense of how to promote equality and ethical just trading and commerce within Africa. So Brian Asinja, welcome to the Black Gold Podcast. Thank you very much, Moses Wahoo. So uh, first of all, can you please explain to listeners what, what you mean by cashless society? Uh, cashless society has two definitions, and the first one is technical and the other is somewhat philosophical. The technical one means a society that is mostly doing transactions electronically. And we're seeing a lot of that during COVID where digital or contactless payments have increased by over 30% since 2020. Uh, a lot of people are ordering food online, shopping online. Uh, there's minimal paper-based transactions. So that is a variation of it, but it also extends beyond cash. It, with, you know, obviously, there's a lot of hospital visits now happening over the phone, a lot of online learning. So anything that is, is now facilitated electronically that used to be more of an in-person paper-based experience definitely fits the technical definition that's been around since the 60s. The second definition is philosophical and it was uh, some, something I added to the definition to make it more of an ethical definition to then say, at least for me, then cashless means a society that does not look at everything 
through the cash lens, meaning transactions can have value with or without a cash transaction. Relationships can have value with or without a cash transaction. And essentially, in particular for emerging markets like Africa, you could argue then that there is inherent value in the resources there before you even sell them. So it's not necessarily, the value isn't necessarily pegged on how much cash you can fetch for a resource, but there's also that, that, that value can be beyond what the, the limit of cash is. So in terms of what cash is supposed to do, it's that it's supposed to facilitate between the exchange of goods and services. So if it were say in the like early 1600s, if I had a cow and right. you had say a, a house and I wanted to go to this house, I wanted to live in this house and you wanted a cow to get milk from, we would then exchange those two things, a cow for a house. But with the money piece, it then put things into finite categories. It placed a value on these different objects. And so in terms of materialism, and whenever you are talking about people accumulating wealth and cash, there's also the sense of ethics involved in that. Can you speak to right. your, your personal experience between the materialism factor and also the ethics behind that? Sure. Absolutely. I think it's important to remind our listeners of two things, uh, fiat or what we know as cash, you know, the US dollar, the euro, any African currency, any Asian currency you could imagine is only as important as the trust we place in it, but more importantly, the trust we place in the government behind it. So the paper alone is useless but it's the paper plus you trusting that it's worth something. That's what makes it valuable. Secondly, we use fiat, as you mentioned, to facilitate transactions or exchanging of value. So it makes it easier. It's easier to carry. It's easier to store sometimes rather than ha carrying around 10,000 cattle in the city and hoping, you know, somebody will exchange them for a meal or something, right? But that same example of the bulkiness of Caro, I actually use it in the book to say, if I lived, say, in Zimbabwe, I grew up in Uganda, so I know a little bit about Africa too. In Zimbabwe, the inf inflation is so high that you need wheelbarrows and, and plastic bags to transport money just to buy a loaf of bread. So you would need another form of exchange, another facilitator not cash because cash is already becoming burdensome and almost non-practical for some situations. That's one example. But the second and most personal one for me is the lack of traceability. So there's a lot of resistance against digital payments or, or, or cryptocurrency or blockchain solution because people say they, they will use them to commit fraud and, and do drugs and, and facilitate international you know, fraud and, and, and money laundering. Yes, there'll always be bad actors, but that's not the primary use case. What I share in the book is that for me growing up in Uganda, that it was cash actually that facilitated the corruption because it's hard to trace. 
or in, 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 and as you mentioned, there's a drive to just accumulate more of it because it's the only means uh, it's a, a scarce resource or asset that is the only accepted means of transaction. So now in order to share wealth or resources with your neighbor, it, it, yeah, you would have to rely overly on, on that scarce resource. Uh, when you could have transacted in other ways, including electronic. So I think electronic just offers an easier way to transact. And, and more importantly, it, 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 to me, serves a better solution when it comes to storing value or storing wealth, because a lot of fiat currencies, again, are limited by nationalities or governments. So a digital currency can somehow be multinational overnight without worrying about a lot of the costs associated with effects of foreign currency exchanges, converting from one currency to the other, you know, because it's always fluctuating, often people lose a lot of value there too. So now I don't have to always worry, wait, how many euros is a dollar? How many, you know, maybe I could rely on just one digital currency and have that peace of mind and just focus on doing the business and not tracking the price of the currency. So I think if we go back to those fundamentals of we used to just trade maybe cheese for eggs, and then we, we, we brought in a, a fiat or currency to help facilitate that. If you think the Silk Road where they would go to China to get silk and then go sell the textile to get other resources. I think exchanging value has always happened. It's just how do you do it in an easier, safer, and perhaps transparent way. And so the argument then becomes that electronically, we are due for an upgrade and, and it just makes more sense to do it electronically than with cash for most use cases, maybe not all of them, but for most of them. If you were to have a singular currency that was used worldwide, wouldn't it then get rid of, or at least they'll be super minimal in terms of any fees you have to pay in order to transfer your money from, say, from, from francs to euros or something like that. Right. So it would lower the total fees to maintain the system. However, it would not eliminate costs because remember costs, again, sometimes you pay for trust. So you pay taxes to a government that then guarantees or tries to make sure that inflation doesn't go so high that the price of milk is very, very high. That's the role of the government or through the Federal Reserve tries to make sure that they are regulate, you know, one could say regulating, one could say uh, making things affordable for the general population, right? And if, if, if the country needs more money, they are then able to borrow from other countries. So, but the short answer is yes. With a, and, and there's a new concept called stable coins. With some of these stable coins, because either they are pegged to a dollar or they are pegged to a euro, they don't fluctuate as much. So they kind of stay relatively the same over time and can allow a lot more people to then transact in that one currency without incurring the fluctuations and the cost associated 
with fiat conversions. One could also say digital to fiat conversion, which is becoming a reality. So you have a digital currency, but now you want to cash out. There's still a, a little price involved in that conversion, but that to me, some of that price is, is purely operational, meaning it's just the cost of the, the servers that are maybe validating these transactions, obviously security. So I think you may end up paying for add-on services, but not the fundamental transaction. Does that make sense? So maybe you have a lot of money that you want to protect. Sure, you might hire uh, more of a cyber security expert to help protect your money online, but that's no different from somebody putting their money in a bank to keep it safe as opposed to storing it under the mattress, putting it in a safe so it's fireproof. Uh, but again, the bulkiness and, and the limitations of, of, of regional borders goes away overnight and, and for a region like Africa, a region like India, or a region like most of Latin America, the cost savings on that, if you think international remittances or cross-border trade, trading with your neighboring countries, but you're afraid to because you, you'll always be converting the currency back and forth every day, every week. Not all of us are sophisticated enough to manage that even even one currency conversion, let alone 10 currencies. So digitally, it becomes a little bit easier, especially since even the average person, when we look at it, one of the examples I use in the book is the Mpesa from East Africa. Then the average person can also, with a simple text message, be able to send money to their family members, be able to pay for their utilities. The Ugandan government can now con collect taxes electronically just through a simple SMS service. So you don't need internet. You don't need, you know, just a regular feature port will do that. And I think that's a big, big difference in, in, you know, not just in the ease of use, which is often the argument I hear on the US side. It's like, oh, you just prefer electronic because it's convenient and easy to use. Yes, but it's also practical because the person in the village often doesn't have time to walk to the bank. And we, you know, the, the average situation across Africa is, is waiting in line to even see a bank teller and hoping there's still money left in the bank for you to, to withdraw, right? So that uncertainty, you could check the balance of your account before even leaving home. And I think that saves people time, it saves people money, and allows them to actually focus on doing the important things that they need to be doing rather than, you know, spending more money on transport just to get to a bank. So how has crypto, how has that influenced the African community in terms of transferring money in such a way that that's what's pretty close to what you state as a cashless society? How far away would you say that we are from being completely cashless? I would say we would, at least in our lifetime, we may, we may not be completely cashless, but I would say that we are definitely on track to maybe be 90% there. And, and you only need to look at the last two years. Again, if you look at the COVID situation, 
you know, Ugandan government now, as I mentioned, is collecting taxes electronically. All you have to do to apply for your tax ID is to text the certain government agency. They will then take over using your phone number to verify your identity. And so for me to, as a 30 year old or something, to see that transition from when I first went to apply for my passport, I had to wake up at 6 a.m. or 5 a.m., make sure I was standing in line and, and that line probably took, you know, you end up living with your passport maybe at four o'clock if you're lucky. That's a whole day spent just to receive a basic service of a physical paper product. And now they are eliminating all that time and saying, no, all you have to do is text us. We know who you are. We will then send you your tax ID. You can then calculate how much, you know. So I think the the change and the impact is not just limited to crypto. It's it's governments then realizing, wait a minute, we can save costs. We can serve more residents. We can reach more people. And that's the case in India. That's the case, I would argue, even in the U.S., all the well, unemployment benefits were actually mostly delivered electronically directly to people's bank accounts or uh, in other forms, except for a few people that still preferred receiving traditional checks. So I think that there's an element of cost efficiency. Statistically, when you digitize a, any system or any process, you have a cost savings of about 80%. So that's a big, big argument for uh, both governments and also just private institutions that once they try it, <laughs> and realize the benefits, right? It's, it, it's, it, there's no going back. So I think I wouldn't say we're going to be a hundred percent cashless, but we will increasingly become cashless because education is going there. Banking is suddenly there. Healthcare is going there. And if people need a practical example, of what that looks like, they only need to look at the COVID period within their country and, and, and sort of the pressure but also opportunity that's providing to us as a society to reimagine how we can do things with the help of technology. Yeah, and it's really incredible to see how much cryptocurrency really just exploded during COVID. Because uh -huh. before that, like you hear a little rumors here and there, like, oh, like this thing is the cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and it's this thing right. that you can. It was very few. It was yeah. a few things before, and now there's a lot broader conversation. In Africa, for example, I, I was an evangelist for the Equin project, which is trying to reimagine one digital currency for Africa. I was piloted by Equin, the famous musician. And they are, again, their vision is to then help entrepreneurs do cross-border trade through these digital payments. I know for a fact that the African Union is also researching and looking at ways to use digital currencies or digital transactions to minimize those cross-border expenses of just uh, fiat to fiat conversion. If Uganda is trading with uh, Kenya, how do we make sure the vendors can still trade across the border in this and settle their prices in a currency that is not susceptible to, to price fluctuations in the market. I, again, if we move to the U.S. side, the Biden administration just released regulation clarifying that any payments over $600 electro 
digitally now has to be kind of reported to the IRS. Uh, I think they're just laying a foundation. So if you receive payments in, in PayPal, Square, uh, Cash App, which is owned by Square, you would then already now digitally have a way, they have a way to tax. We're not talking crypto, we're still talking fiat, but in a digital form. But I think that's just a foundation for how they would tax crypto. Uh, it's a matter of putting a threshold on, on the amount that's required to be reported to the IRS. And so right now they're setting a precedent at $600. Used to be like you could send up to $9,999 to the Western Union or, or any money transfer agent without being flagged. Suddenly with the invasion of digital, because you could send those transactions, you know, in, in, in small amount, I think they are lowering that threshold so that somebody doesn't send a hundred thousand in 10 seconds as 10 separate transactions, which is what I would have advised people to do, yeah. but it looks like our government's just as smart, some smart people are working in the, in the government. So we won't really. I suppose you can still take a, you would have uh, taken advantage of that last year since the law became effective this year. So those are some of the changes that when I see for me, I, I try not to get lost in the hype of crypto because it's crypto is a real opportunity, but the infrastructure policy wise and, and, and the laws and, and, and the mass adoption sort of mindset, I think is already happening even outside of crypto. So if you look at. Uh, companies like Visa and, and, you know, getting into the crypto space, a lot of banks launching their own blockchain initiatives. That just tells you that they're all creating the pipelines we need for this thing to be fully rolled out. And I think that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But for those that still feel like it's overwhelming, there's too much to follow. I'm saying just initially treat it like a means of exchange. It's electronic and the IRS will only tax it apparently for now, anything over $600. So it's not going to be any different. It's just instead of going to a bank, you can look at your phone and your phone will tell you your balance and you'll have a directory of people you trust or not that you can send money to. And I think there's simplicity in that. Yeah, because they, I remember it's over $10,000, $10,000 and above, you have to report that to the IRS. But 600 that's like a lot. That's, that's like way yeah, too that's little. Gonna be, that's going to be a lot of people, yeah. So for small businesses that, small businesses actually, like Square launched, I, I believe, 2012, a little bit earlier, when Jack Dorsey had just uh, exited with, with Twitter. So. It started by just Square's invasion was, oh, we're going to print electronic receipts. It used to be you could get a paper receipt for IRS purposes, okay? You needed a physical receipt. The IRS is still big on this. I still get into some business clients that won't really take my electronic receipts. They will still be like, I need a screenshot, take it with a picture, like some other kind of hard evidence that an expense was made. But they standardized digital receipts and started doing like a, a, a point of service, you know, payment portal for, for restaurants, vendors, street vendors. That's how they become a, they became a big payments provider. 
you know, from receipts, they launched a debit card feature, they launched a credit service, and ultimately they are the company behind, obviously, the cash app platform that now allows trading and investing and saving. And I think Jack, just uh, Jack Dorsey, the CEO, just launched another company dedicated to cryptocurrency. Uh, and we just quit his work at Twitter to focus on that. So to me, this is the journey. People are already using Robinhood for financial trading and little C. People are already familiar with Venmo and, and, and Cash App. You know, all I need to know is your username. So in the era of hashtags and emojis, Maybe it's as easy as sending an emoji of a billion dollars and then you just send somebody a billion dollars. And so I think that it definitely makes things exciting and interesting. And so the, 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 the things that are then worth considering, not necessarily the technical issues, but the human issues of identity, you know, who's going to control this new system. If you think of all these electric cars, who will own all the charging stations so that maybe they can set the price for charging your car. Who's going to control the internet that then connects all these devices. But more importantly, will we have a cashless society that requires internet or can we have one that requires sort of the practical low level processing? And, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of times we prioritize the high cost high demand sort of ecosystems when, as I illustrated with M-Pesa example in East Africa, which is still by far the world's largest mobile banking ecosystem, most successful trillions of dollars being processed every day, independent of, of Western influence. And it's still succeeding because it's simple, it's practical, it's localized. So people can still bank in Swahili or other local languages and they don't need a special smart app to even get started or be involved. So I think for me, inclusion becomes also just as important of a factor so that technology has to be very practical, that it works for a lot of people, regardless of maybe their social status or their geographical location, that the more people you can bring into an ecosystem or a platform, they actually help contribute or find new use case. And that's why, like, oftentimes I'm just big on talking about the Africa or emerging market kind of communities, because innovation in developed markets sometimes is saturated and is, is trying to create scarcity where scarcity is not. Whereas for emerging markets, they are actually solving real issues with practical solutions. And you don't need to sugarcoat a design or a solution. If it works, it works. And I think that's a powerful sort of example to, to learn from as opposed to people getting funded for ideas that we don't even know how they work and yet they bring 10 million, $1 billion. So are there any base ethical guidelines you would need to have in order to have a, even just to use cryptocurrency? in such a way that it cannot be used for, for bad and it cannot be, no one can cheat anyone with crypto as they have and currently are doing with, with cash. Are there any like strict set of rules so, you would have to put in place? 
So I think there'll always be some sort of regulation or rules, but I, I do think that over time, as we will see, the rules will become optional. So if you, a quick example I like to use is Wall Street, which is self-regulated. The federal government still regulates Wall Street, but not as much as people would like or not as much as we think. So the banks and financial institutions come together and decide how are we going to, to design a marketplace? Who are we going to allow to trade? How fast can they access information? And, and what hours, if any, can they trade, right? They create those rules and then communicate those to the market or to the public. I think in the future, the federal government will play almost a guideline recommendation role, similar to how right now, say, again, I don't, I don't want to say another country. I won't even name any country because I don't want to negate the experience. But it, it, usually the U.S., if it's like dangerous to go somewhere, they'll issue what is called a travel advisory, you know, an alert. We think this place is dangerous. We think you might be kidnapped. We think there's a risk of getting a disease. Therefore, we are arguing our residents not to travel there, right? I think of the, the role of the government in the future and other activist organizations, but it doesn't have to be just the government, will be to educate and inform so that ultimately the individual, the business, decides how for example, there's a way to incentivize the centralized, right? Because that's the bigger de debate. Is it centralized sort of single entity, in this case, a government or a large bank that's facilitating this ecosystem? Or is it decentralized in which case, hey, all I need is a, a, a way to plug into the system and I can transact with my neighbor without routing all my transactions through Germany or through Asia, which is often the challenge with centralized systems is you have to first go through a, a centralized approver or third party or middleman. Uh, so I think the edge to edge transaction, mobile to mobile, near field communication, whatever we want to call it. I have a smartphone, you have a smartphone, let's do a little business. You can then decide how fast you want to upgrade what we can call the, the government protection based on your risk profile and risk appetite. So if we look at the, the PayPal example, government doesn't really care if you send a dollar to your neighbor. Okay, you send $600, $1,000, $10,000, you'll start to see a message that says, are you sure you want to send this $10,000? Because you may not get it back. Yeah. So the sensitization will definitely be more and more you know, important. And then the secondary is obviously guidance in terms of how they can capture that revenue from that ecosystem themselves. Because obviously I know for a fact that fiat kind of uh, tax revenue will decrease while digital kind of tax revenue increases. And so they will then have to adapt their tax code to deal with these primarily digital revenue streams as less and less people deal in cash-based transactions. And that evolution itself will perhaps be, but I don't think it's not, it's an either or. I don't think the government necessarily wants to control all digital transactions. I think they will regulate it more like a casino, you know, casinos, you know, have specific rules, 
But then once you're in the casino, it's the casino boss that, that knows the rules of the casino, right? They still answer to the government, but in a very loose way. And I think that's the beauty of decentralized where governments can come up with their own little local plans, but it won't necessarily prohibit a lot of, hopefully, what I would call open market kind of international trading and, and, and commerce that, that really benefits from the open internet. And there's, there's, there's something beautiful about at least the, the existing cryptocurrencies in that if they are, some of them are designed with this decentralized peer-to-peer uh, -peer transactional element that as long as some percentage of the people have a trust in that ecosystem, it's very hard to shut down because it's not centralized. You trust it. It's just yeah. whenever you exchange your dollar yeah. Yeah. or for groceries, you just yeah. believe that's going to work. It's going to work. Yeah. It's money. It's going to work. Get it? If you get it, you get it. And so, yeah. and so that there's that the, the trust is more that it's almost the non-technical things are the important things, the trust, the identity of, oh, this was designed by an African. Let's use it because it's. There's that African pride, or this is an Indian solution. I use India, a lot of stories in India, for example. In, in India now, you cannot, as a foreign company, whether you're Amazon or Netflix, you cannot directly now own or purchase an Indian. You cannot have like a controlling stake. It has to be less than 10 to 20%. So that allows local innovations to thrive. That allows Indians to become millionaires and billionaires without being drawn out by multinationals, which is often the challenge with African countries because, you know, French countries will come in and be the de facto monopoly. You'll have a, yeah, a British uh, BP kind of European conglomerate in South Africa or Kenya becoming the, the national monopoly. And so once there's that both political and one could say economic protection for local innovation, both for identity, but also for practical purposes that you start to see these solutions really five, 10 years later, live up to their potential because they were not stifled uh, by international pressure and can then actually become equal trading partners or equal sort of innovation, you know, contributors to meet global needs and challenges. So the internet in India, and, and uh, by the way, if you know. I think the meme for 2021 was American companies are being taken over by Indians. So from Microsoft to, I, I think even now Twitter to Google, uh, it's all sort of Indian or Indian American executives, Pepsi. And that's a good thing. You know, I would argue that I don't necessarily want that to be the case for Africa. I would want to see more successful African companies being headed by Africans and not necessarily foreigners or, or, or as I like to say, the, the white man, which is often still the case. Some of the largest companies are now on the public stock exchange in Africa are actually colonial sort of companies that, that really built their reputation and, and sort of monopoly power uh, during colonial times from mining and, and, and construction and other areas. So I think we need a new era of, of companies that are locally grown and locally supported 
both by the government, but also by the citizenry in terms of just free market participation that then allows for these to become, of course, new revenue streams for the government through taxation, but actually job creation engines because they are hiring local talent and not necessarily importing it again. So, so I think there's a transformational element and, and all of those things, by the way, become more and more possible because you can say, well, maybe we don't have to be reliant on the dollar or we don't necessarily have to be reliant on the, on the yuan or Japanese yen, or maybe we can create our own local currency to trade with each other first. And then once we're comfortable trading with each other, sure, we can export abroad, but the trade is happening locally fast. And if somebody wants to come participate in our market, we're going to charge them 22% tax or something like that. So, so uh, India, Rwanda, and a few countries are beginning to figure out some of these, how to manage innovation without exposing it to unfair sort of foreign competition or, or, or pressure. And, and that pays off in the long term because now you develop more and more skilled leaders capable of leading billion dollar organizations. And, and, and so you now have both innovation talent, but now leadership as a new talent export that you can now license to the U.S. of the world. Uh, and I think that's a great place to be. You know, you don't get that from just exporting your best talent and not nurturing or supporting local ideas. Yeah. And also it's the idea that, as you said before, it's dealing with as an African pride in terms of this is for Africa, made by Africans for Africans. And this can then also solve so many issues regarding money in terms of food and also trade. And so you're then able to buy goods and services at a singular cost that then won't be challenged or won't be just dismissed as, oh, look, this is my currency, go yeah, away. Yeah, Paris is lower or something, right? You can, you can negotiate. Yeah, you, you're right. You have higher bargaining power because now your currency is not just backed by the value of what you're selling. It's backed by an entire continent, by the way, with trillions of dollars. Uh, in, in mineral wealth and other assets. So I think that I see that happening. I wouldn't necessarily say in the 10 to 20, but definitely in the next 50 years. Because it takes every 10 years, we really, I think the stage we're in, if I look at uh, Africa, for example, we are in an awakening phase. And uh, ideally by 2030, doing business will not no longer be an exception by the norm. Entrepreneurship will have become normalized. I, I think for Africa as a region in particular, I predict more of family businesses than the traditional sort of private. If you look at sort of the Arab money kind of structure, I see that happening for Africa where it's a lot of sort of family wealth. If we can sort of educate our own family members to help manage finances, it is doable because if we try to do it the Western way of, of just capitalism in its purest sense, we don't have yet the financial literacy yet to, to manage it the right way. But if we look at it as, 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 as family assets that we're doing to pass down to the next generation, 
then that can bias the long-term thinking mindset that we need to, to, to build up those assets uh, for the next generation that can then take the mantle and do better. So I think we're still waking up. I imagine 2030 will be building more and then maybe 2040, 2060, there will certainly be a lot more ownership like we see in India now. It's like you come from abroad, they'll be like, what do you mean? We can create our own internet, you know, we can create our own smartphone. We can, you know, you want a license from us, let us know. You want to hire us to do your film content, let us know. But you're not coming here to film or to do anything because we can do that. And, and, and I think that it starts from that sense of ownership that's not necessarily technical, uh, but it's more of a human ethical value of like, we want to create jobs. We want to employ young people, you know, over, I want to say over, over 50% of the African demographic is under 30 years of age. Uh, and yet unemployment is uh, on average, it varies from 20 to 70% in some countries. So, you know, just keeping people in school and then all of a sudden to turn them back to the streets with no employment or training on how they can be job creators themselves is sort of a system just waiting to collapse. And I think we, you know, entrepreneurship have realized at least for me offers way more alternatives in terms of just the awareness factor and equipping you with skills to navigate the world. Suddenly enough to say, Maybe not all of us need to be waiting on a job. Maybe some of us should be trying to build to create jobs. And even if 10 to 20% of the people do that, sometimes that's all you need because not everybody can be a leader or an innovator, but suddenly they can be great workers and great contributors once those ideas are nurtured and, and developed. And it's also the idea, as you said, it's supporting each other in such a way that you guys are, you become a singular unit that cannot be broken by any outside influences. And you also cannot be, be, be cheated, be, be taken advantage of, and you are then able to support each other and lift each other up. Yeah, absolutely. It's, a, it's yeah. definitely a very, very important, uh, in a mindset to say what do we care about as a society regardless of where you live you know one of the questions i try to explore in the book and i don't think i address it fully uh, that i hope will just continue to be a, a, an area of discussion is the question of as a as a global society forget individual countries are there values that we feel like we share and we can agree on and i've found that the answer is no like everything is relative if I ask you what ownership means, ownership in the U.S. means individual ownership in, in, in Africa and Asia, and I would argue some of Latin America, it's somewhat communal in a sense that this can be our land, this can be our airport, this can be our, some risk, there's certainly an element of individual ownership, but it's not as widespread as, as here where it's like, no, we don't mind if only 10 people own 90% of the wealth in America, that's fine. That's how we, we, we as a society. And I think that has to be checked. It could work here, but it shouldn't necessarily be the norm in other countries, because I think there's value in shared ownership and shared responsibility. 
certainly for natural resources, certainly for agriculture, you mentioned food, things like transportation, you know, if you try to just fully focus on private roads in Africa, uh, it may, or tall roads, it may not necessarily work. And we see that challenge happening right now in South Africa where, you know, innovation happens, but it excludes all the low-income people who actually need the transport to get to the city to work and go back to the suburbs or the slums. And yet you will create this fancy high-speed rail that honestly rich people rarely use because they have cars. And, and, and so I think often like we think we're improving society, but we're not because we're just not designing ecosystems the right way but perhaps feel important or good by saying we just spent X billion of dollars on transportation, right? But if you then ask who was it for and who's really using it and benefiting, the numbers are often appalling. And so that's, that's an example of a cash society that thinks because X amount of money was spent, that's a big thing. When really we should be saying, but how many people benefited and, and what was the actual impact? You know, so I, so I think there's, there's conversations should be had around what's important beyond money. Yeah, exactly. And also with the mutual, mutual currency and you have trade between different countries, you also, I don't think you wouldn't necessarily have a need for American missionary services in terms of different churches going to different uh, villages and different towns in Africa and then having to offer their services to them because I, I, this was in a, in a documentary I saw a few, few years ago. It was, there was, this, I think it was a certain village in, uh, in Kenya uh -huh. that these American missionaries, they delivered these like boxes and boxes of shoes. And one of the things that that did was that it put the local shoemakers out of business. And so it's an influx of all of these, these products from overseas. And they're not, they're not necessarily the best products either, but they are, there's all these products overseas that you think like, oh, I'm helping these kids, giving them shoes, but you're putting out the person that makes the kids for the, makes the shoes for the kids. But yeah. amount of business. And so with that equal currency, you're then able to trade good for good and, and resource for resource. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and, and I think you just hit the nail on the head right there. What is it called? Like excess, excess product or excess product dumping. Has it happened to Jamaica where World Bank sponsored program will bring in a cheap milk and chicken? And, and bananas, and then people stopped planting bananas, and then the whole banana plantation business just, you know, like local farming just disappeared almost overnight in, in, in less than seven years. And they were now solely reliant on imports, so cheap imports. And then all, almost overnight, too, the prices increased because now there was no longer competition. So I think, you know, capitalism in itself isn't bad but you have to be aware of its social relevance. So if we say, if, if capitalism only succeeds or is great in, in a scarcity mindset, 
then to me, the beauty of capitalism or entrepreneurship is that you try to create more out of, out of the scarce. You know, where capitalism tries to maximize value out of scarcity, the vehicle to me is entrepreneurship, which says we will turn a problem into a solution. We will turn a problem into an opportunity, not necessarily through a greed or cash optimization lens, but literally from an innovative kind of way of like, how do we turn one egg into 10 eggs kind of mindset? And so you have to transcend that scarcity. You have to transcend the cash and, and look at the social needs and, and the practical innovation needed to actually deliver service and deliver value to more people and not necessarily to less people. So I, I you know, I, I say yes. So, you know, capitalism is founded on scarcity, but that's not the end. It's like entrepreneurship then builds on top of that scarcity to make scarcity irrelevant. And, and I think sometimes we don't have that other conversation or, or we are told that it's the scarcity that's the norm and that should be celebrated. And, you know, you look at Apple, if they only make 4% of the phones in the world, wow, they must be such a great company. They are, but I'm not necessarily, you know, impressed because the impact I would say to Africa is minimal. I think Google does a better job of including a lot more communities. Uh, in India, you can use your phone in Hindi. So an 80-year-old woman or 60-year-old woman, a 40-year-old mother doesn't need to know English to benefit from, you know, innovations of, of, of mobile banking and, and access to healthcare online and connecting to, to, to marketplace prices before she brings her crops to the market. So all these things can really serve us if they're designed in a practical and inclusive way. So that's why for me, the ethical conversation starts. It's really to force us to say, so what? So what we can, you know, process billions of transactions a second. You know, does that help the mother feed her kids? Does that help create jobs in that village you were talking about? Or are we only hyping that so that a few people can still make those billions of dollars? And then only after that, send the 10 free shoes to a village. Right. So it has to be the other way around and not the aid coming at the end. And, and, and we call that success. So I agree with you for sure on the aid free world. You know, aid is great, but it, let it be useful in times of disaster, in times of need. Uh, but a society cannot live its whole life as if it were always an, an emergency in, in need of aid. That's just, a, a, you know, that's not sustainable at all. If you wanted to make a, if you wanted to help, the best way to help would be to find a charity or if you have a friend to know somebody and who, if you know, if you have a friend that knows somebody who makes scarves, you can then fund them directly and you can give them some seed monies to sell their mm -hmm. scarves. Yeah. So then that way you are becoming an investor, not just in a singular business, but in an entire country, a village, then, people. Like, yeah. Yeah. One of the things I like to do even here in New York is to find like a local cafe, a local music place, a local, 
it's like that's your way of being supporting people in the community you live in by buying from them by and so 100 percent, there's value in capitalism and entrepreneurship and we need to normalize that idea that the best way to support somebody is to buy from them not necessarily invest in them that comes later but even if you give them money, they need it to create products. There's different ways to get money. You can get it from selling products. You can get it from investments, from loans, uh, grants. So buying is a win-win. You get to enjoy the benefits of the product. They get to get the revenue they need to do business. And so I think that the, moving away from the aid mentality and back to value exchange and hey, whether that happens electronically or not, I don't know if we have time, but one of the things I wanted to quickly share is the, the value or the concept of shared ownership. Go ahead. And, and ownership basically now referencing, traditionally we think of it as, as I mentioned in the US, it's private ownership. Uh, in other societies like Asia or Africa, we might think of it as social ownership. But now increasingly, even if it doesn't matter which of those models you aspire to, electronically or at least digitally, we can enable fractional ownership without involving complicated lawyers and, and, and fancy accountants. So one example I use is the story of Chobani. The Chobani founder is a Greek immigrant in the U.S. who started a yogurt company and in 2006 decided to give shares to his employees and make them part owners in the company. Now that's not unheard of, but it's increasingly becoming a trend. I, in the book, so I argue that in, a, in an ideal case, at least five, 10 years from now, we'll start to see shared ownership be part of the deal from the beginning. You know, you will not work 10, 20 years and then an empl employer thinks, geez, we are now successful thanks to your labor. I think I should give you some shares, right? It will almost be by default a part of your employment agreement so that any success that comes from some of these contributions, it's, you're getting like a lifetime royalty or some kind of, because it's up to you if you want to sell those rights to that ownership, but we can set that up digitally through smart contracts. There's new concepts called decentralized autonomous organizations that are now launching we're seeing the NFT or non-fungible token crave that's allowing artists to uh, allow, I think Nas is experimenting with that, allowing his fans to buy royalties to his music. So technology is there to help us do these things. We just need to trust that we can bring them into our communities and use them for the right things. And, 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 and in, in closing, I think one of the big points I make in the book is that technology itself is neutral, right? It's not the problem. It's often we as human beings who create it. By doing so, we put in the values that we believe are important and we tell it how to behave and how to treat us and ultimately define our interaction or relationship with technology. So if things are still wrong within our societies, we still don't trust each other, if we still don't respect each other, if we still take each other for granted, then that will be re reflected in the systems we design. And, and we can't always rely on the machines to fix our problems for us. Because often we just have to first start by trusting each other as humans before we can trust each other through machines. 
It's also the idea of if you have that mutual trust again within that new system, then it becomes like the current one, only that it is, it's equal and everyone has access to it and anyone can benefit from it as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's staggering for me to realize that about 4 billion people don't have access to traditional banking. For each, you know, for issues we talked about earlier, long lines, longer processing time, requiring lots of identification when really all you would need is just a phone number. And maybe that's the beginning. Now, we're not saying you process a billion dollars on your mobile phone yet, but maybe down the road that would be possible. But for a small farmer, for a student who needs to establish uh, a history of, of being responsible financially, being able to pay their school fees from their phone can be a way for them to establish that reliable payment history, you know, because not all of us can afford a million dollar loan overnight and have that history. So I think that there's little things governments or institutions can do to digitize this. You know, very quick example that I also dig deeper into is the credit system in the U.S., which was historically, by the way, biased where black people wouldn't get access to loans because of redlining loans and all these other things. So how do we still make that the gold standard for social and economic mobility in the 21st century when it's based on decades and decades of injustice? So I argue that either we start over or we find a way to modify those. And, and I think banks are already getting there. We're seeing more and more banks launch their own credit rating systems and not relying on uh, the, the normal ones that we know, mainly because they realize they have a better relationship with the customer <laughs> and they count the money. They are the first line of defense anyway. They know how much the client is making. They know if the client is paying the bills on time before they send that data somewhere else. Anyway, we're seeing companies like PayPal, issue working capital loans to small businesses based on their revenue history. And you only pay by a percentage from your future revenue. So that decreases the risk of collateral requirement. And you can still be, you know, granted access to capital up to three times, three X of your most recent revenue in the last, or the most profitable three months you've had in a, in a year. So I think that technology can allow this traceability and, and increase trust if it's used in the right way and, and then end up bringing more and more people uh, into the economic system than the cash system did because, yeah, having like a 60% of the population unbanked or 25% in some countries, it's still a big number. Like the more we can make it easier for them, you know, the easier even for governments to monitor and collect that revenue it needs. So there's a win-win for everybody with, as you mentioned, with electronic systems. It seems to be equal playing field for a lot of parties. Well, Brian, this has been a wonderful conversation. I have another question for you, and that is, if you had the ability to send a worldwide text, what would your message be? Wow, that's a good one. The message would be, hello world. I guess the world is yours. Start acting like it. 
Why would that be a message? Well, mainly because I think as individuals, we feel powerless against institutions or against systems we participate in. But the bigger point that I make in both of my books is that individual decision-making or agency, like what you decide to do, despite the challenges you're living in, despite at a certain point in your life, you're making decisions that impact you and other people. And so it's ultimately your decision-making capacity that's important. Not the corporation, not the environment you're in, but how you're responding to it. Personally, for me, that's been a trial back by experience. I grew up seeing my dad sort of going to jail for bribery and other allegations. When I was coming to the U.S., I almost uh, was asked by my former English teacher to bribe to prove that I was born there, even though this was the first time I was leaving the country. Uh, and I decided not to participate. I think uh, a family member ended up taking care of the situation for me, but I did not willingly participate because I knew that if I started down that path, you know, and I'm just 18 years old and I'm thinking, gee, like, if this is my first bribe, I imagine there's going to be more. So I, I wanted to delay that. I was like, if I'm going to do it, I don't want it to be in my teen years. And that was a decision I took. And, and um, prior to say, still to this day, I haven't really been actively, I understand that sometimes it's needed, but I try to, you know, do what I can to shy away from, from the bribing option. But five, 10 years later, things have improved. And, and with electronic, I just renewed my passport and did it all electronically without, without leaving. Uh, so I do think that goes to show that as individuals, what we can control mostly is what we decide to do. And that often means doing the right thing. And it's never uh, a useless gesture because it can have impacts today, three years later, 10 years later but we are not powerless. Even if the systems are designed to tell us differently. So that's why. Well, thank you so much, Brian, for your time. Yeah, appreciate it. And Brian Asinja online at Brian Asinja. I'm sure the uh, listeners can find more details in the podcast descriptions. And we look forward to continuing these conversations in other ways. Thank you, Moses. Thank you for listening to this episode of Black Gold Podcast, Stories of Black Dreamers and Doers. Please go ahead and subscribe and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to the podcast right now so that it can reach more people. If you want to get in touch with me personally, go ahead and send me an email at blackgoldpod at gmail.com. If you want to talk about the show or if you want to talk about how to create your own podcast, where you can find people and talk with them about the topic of your interest. If you want to go further into doing that, make sure to go to www.blackgoldpod.com and go ahead and scroll all the way down to the bottom and get yourself a copy of the Side Gig Podcast Guide. It's a guide that I put together for you to start a quality podcast on a low budget. So go ahead and do those things, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Thanks for listening.